Hi everyone, this week we spoke to Dr Julieta Galanti of Cambridge University. Julieta is a qualified medical doctor whose research now lies in mental health promotion and the effects of lifestyle on health. In particular, she looks at the effects of meditation on mental health and has recently piloted mindfulness courses for students at the university. We have some fascinating conversations with Julia about her work, and her work is well worth looking into. As ever, if you enjoy this episode, please recommend it to a friend, give us a rating on iTunes, or leave a review. Hi, Julieta, how are you? Yeah, I'm good, Harry. Thank you for your call. No, it's a pleasure. Um, so to start with, can you explain kind of what your personal and professional relationship to mental health is? Um, well, I was, um, I was really want, I was always wanting to do research and I was always, you know, I always wanted to study the human being. Uh, so I started medicine and then I realized that um, there's, you know, physical health is affected by mental health to such a high degree. Like, you know, however you feel uh, in terms of your mind will affect your physical health so much that I became more and more interested in that aspect and and just realizing that, you know, there was a key there to, to maintaining a human being's mental health in the wider sense. Uh, and um, And that would actually... Uh, for instance, it would, you know, it would prevent physical disease, I thought, but also it would make someone, someone who already has a condition, physical health condition, they could manage their condition much better. So that's, that's how I started, uh, really. So I became very interested in the, in the public health aspect of mental health, public mental health, that's called. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think what you were saying about how kind of your mental state can relate to your physical state is is really fascinating and from a personal experience I know that I had uh, an issue with chronic pain and that was um, that it was kind of a, a cycle where the the mental stuff would make the physical stuff worse and the physical stuff would make the mental stuff work so I can kind of relate I could see exactly what you're saying about the interrelationship between mental and physical health there yeah, well, I was seeing that type of thing um, all the time when I was a medical student, and um, and then you know when I was practicing and as a trainee. So, yeah, I also thought that is that is quite important. So you transitioned from uh, medicine towards more psychology and psychiatry. Is that right? Yeah, that's you know that's how my path started in a way, and then you get deeper and deeper into mental health. Um, I did some mental health training as well specifically uh, but my main training was on research methods for for public health and then uh, my PhD was already focusing on on a, a type of meditation called loving kindness meditation and the potential for um, improving well-being in a general population um, and then I focused more on mindfulness meditation as a as a means so uh, so one of the things I was always interested in related to mental health is how can we improve that uh, in a way that is actually more more like a personal development thing, right? So not like a treatment necessarily because you don't need 
you know, in order to improve your mental health and well-being, you don't need to consider that a, a condition or, you know, medicalize the thing. So also I was wanting to see whether there was something that we could, we could change as individuals rather than, um, you know, needing tablets or some external kind of uh, thing that, um, that was kind of correcting uh, something that was wrong rather than, rather than seeing it as, well, we need to, you know, continue developing as, as human beings, not just as children, but also as adults. So that's, that's the, the, yeah, the frame that I gave to, to my training. Yeah. Starting from a kind of perspective that you can, you don't need to be ill to kind of get better. Yes. Cool. So you touched on um, mindfulness and loving kindness meditation. And for like, can you give like a, a lay explanation of what the kind of difference is between those two and and what kind of stuff you found with your research on, on both of those? Yeah, of course. So, well, they both come from a Buddhist uh, tradition and background. Uh, so they they would form part of this spiritual tradition. And um, it started to be used in, in the Western world, you know, um, just as a practice, just as a as a technique uh, with with a different aim, which is the aim of well improving your your well being and mental health. And in the case of loving kindness meditation, um, because it um, aims at increasing compassion and empathy, it was also seen as a way of um, improving the community's well being, not just the individual's well being. So that's what I tried to. To test in my research so mindfulness is more about attention and paying attention in a certain way uh, that way is also has compassion embedded because it's with curiosity and with no self-judgment just paying attention to what's happening but in loving kindness meditation that is very explicit the compassion aspect and it's self-compassion and compassion towards others so i tested this um hypothesis that it would be it would increase empathy and help in behavior you know altruism um, particularly loving kindness meditation and i compared it to physical exercise which you know both would increase well-being but physical exercise there's no reason why it would include compassion um, and i did find that um, people with loving kindness meditation would really start reflecting on altruism on their relationship with the the you know the others um and with the others that they know and with the other people that they don't know about um they would they would reflect on empathy you know they would really kind of revise their beliefs and challenge them and their attitudes now whether that translates into um altruistic behavior and I must say that this was an online course, just 10 minutes a day for a month. So that is quite a short intervention, quite a short course in a way compared compared to practicing this for years, let's say. So, yeah, that didn't seem to be the case that people would um, kind of quickly become more altruistic. Um, so, you know, we need to, this is one of the uh, sobering things that sometimes you find with research that, you know, you, sometimes you have high expectations and then you find that the truth lies somewhere between uh, it's useless and it's uh, incredibly useful and it's a miracle. So uh, 
So that was interesting. And also that not everyone um, found loving kindness meditation pleasant, uh, let alone easy. So it's a difficult thing. It's difficult meditation to try when you're a beginner. Uh, it may go very well with you. It may not. And you, you know, you need to remember, I think that this applies to any meditation type. You need to remember that you're trying this. It's not necessarily that you are doing it wrongly. It's just that it's not, so it's not easy to work with your mind, with your own mind. Yeah. And what kind of other findings have there been around kind of love and kindness meditation? I know there's been a couple of more kind of stuff being put out there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a very new research area compared to, well, to other research areas in mental health and, and also compared to mindfulness. So for mindfulness meditation, research started, um, you know, at least a couple of decades before loving kindness meditation research. Um, there's, you know, the, the findings, um, I, what I can remember <laughs> is in general, they are promising, but it's just these, you know, this difference between subjective reality and objective reality that you find. So the findings are not, um, clear on whether loving kindness meditation would make people more compassionate in practice. There's a lot of problems with measuring how compassionate someone is, by the way, it's hard. And then um, also there's cultural differences, how, you know, people from different backgrounds may relate differently to things about altruism and compassion. It's not the same for, for all the cultures. So, um, but yeah, so, and the, the, the other kind of big um, thing that the field would need, will need in, in order to mature and you know find the, the research um, reliable is to improve the research methods and this is true I think for all the meditation research but probably more true so so that for mindful sorry for loving kindness meditation this is this is more true because it's a younger field and there's a lot of expectations placed on on these practices compassion meditation loving kindness meditation that's yeah that's fascinating because I've, I've just finished reading a book about um that kind of reviewed the the scientific uh research that's been done in in the area and they were saying that at the start they would they didn't really have um com anything to compare it to so they would they were prescribing people to do uh, some kind of meditation but their control group was doing nothing and they were saying how actually you, you can't the you can't have the expectation that the other control group would be doing nothing you need to have it so like you did to compare it to uh something like exercise or or doing other things um but can you can see the the research field moving uh moving forward and, and doing more rigorous exp um getting more rigorous results or Yes, yes, it is slowly moving forward. Um, the example that you gave is great. Yeah, the, the control group is very important. I would say that um, researchers nowadays in the meditation uh, field are, are more aware of the control group issue. And that doesn't mean that you always use an active control. So there are um, situations in which a passive control makes sense as well. I can talk about that later if you wish. But um, there are other things that are as important as a control group. And there's, they, you know, some things are not so, so much uh, talked about. So 
very recently, just a few months ago, one month or two months ago, I went to to a conference, the Mind and Life Research Conference in the US. And uh, in this conference, I presented like a little workshop with colleagues about how to improve the um, the methodology for the randomized controlled trials. So these are the the typical trials that show whether meditation is better than a control group, for, for example. And one of the things that we uh, found, because we, we showed, you know, first the results of a systematic review of those reviews of trials that show that the methods are weak and then what things can be improved. So one key thing is that you make public your plan, your research plan before you start your research. This is very important for trials. So, you know, if your trial, um, if you if you do your trial because you want to see whether meditation improves compassion, then compassion has to be your main outcome of the trial, and you have to say this before you start recruiting people. This is because um, then what you you know, if you don't do this, you could be tempted to measure lots of different things. You know, compassion, stress, depression, anxiety, whatever, and then you choose the outcome that was positive. I mean, I'm not saying that people do this, but you could be, you know, thought you could, people could be suspicious that you're doing it. Um, and then you just report that one and you don't report the other ones, the other outcomes that gave you the results you didn't want. So, to you know, cover yourself for that. You publish before you start, you publish your intentions, let's say. So that is something that um, why is this important? For example, this is important because um, the policymakers that will decide whether to incorporate whatever intervention, mental health intervention, let's say meditation in this case, if they are trying to decide whether to incorporate meditation into a public service, so, you know, into the NHS, for example, in the UK, they will look at the trials that have published the protocol, so the plans for the research beforehand, and they will not consider or consider as very low evidence the trials that haven't done so. So, so there's really, I mean, if you want to, if you want your research to have impact in the real world, you do need to pay attention to what the policymakers will look for. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's um, that's something that's coming more prevalent across all kinds of academia now. That new research actually has some kind of application and meaning in uh, the real world, I suppose. Um, mm-hmm. And so you've done something quite interesting recently, which is uh, piloting mindfulness courses for students. Um, and we, I'd be really keen to hear a bit more about that and what the results are um, and, and how it's been received. Yeah, of course. So this is a trial that we started uh, three years ago. And the, the, the background to the trial was that um, here in the University of Cambridge, the authorities were quite concerned about student mental health and the, um, you know, the rate of students needed, needing uh, professional help uh, going up. So this was this was quite. Um, it is still quite, you know, quite concerning in general. I think not just in Cambridge. So here in Cambridge, we had like uh, the rates um, of people of referrals to the university counselling service increasing like by more than 30% from year to year, things like that. Um, so 
the problem is you can resource your university counseling service. You can you can you can increase your resources and the offer the provision. But if you will have a peak where you know when the exams come, there's a peak in students being referred to the counseling service, and it's it's this is this is very hard to match. Like you know suddenly lots of students needing counseling and you having to match that. So they thought that they would. Um, benefit from a preventative intervention for, for from something that students could learn before coming to the revision period, where you know that would um, increase their resilience to the stressful condition. It's vital that you actually have you see it as you you view your mental health as something you need to safeguard, whether you have a condition or you know whether you're under particular loads of stress. It's something you need to safeguard throughout a period of time rather than using it as an emergency like when it becomes an emergency yeah exactly exactly and probably you know very hard to stop once once your head starts playing tricks on you it's it's really hard to stop it's much better to uh, try to avoid that in the first place um so so they they looked at the things that um, they have been offering apart from counseling. So they had been offering a little course, mindfulness course, uh, then a little, I don't know, relaxation course or animal assisted therapy course and things. And they realized that the one that was by far being more po- most popular was the, med- the mindfulness course. Um, so there's, so they said, well, you know, if this is the most popular thing among students and they will not come so much to the other things, but to this one, they will come. Uh, then why don't we pilot um, a larger provision of the mindfulness course and uh, and we see if it works. So so they found money for that pilot within the university. And then, um, so the university funded the pilot and they funded the research as well, which is quite an interesting model. And then they came to the department of psychiatry where I work and they said, well, could you test these? And we said, well, the best way of testing this would be a randomized controlled trial. So we, that's what we did. When we discussed control groups, so the trial had a what we call a passive control group because they, although they had this, you know, the control group had support, it was the usual support, the counseling service support. So they could, if they didn't feel well, they could um, be referred to the counseling service, but they didn't have the mindfulness course and they didn't have an alternative course. Um, so, um, so, you know, we did, chat about the possibility of an active control, but the the university authorities were interested in just what happens if you add the mindfulness course to what's happening. They weren't really interested, or they, perhaps they were interested in an active control as, you know, we offered something else, but they were saying that the mindfulness course was so popular compared to the others that they would struggle actually to attract students to any other thing that was like, you know, that long and, and uh, with that commitment. So the commitment is typically an eight-week mindfulness course of an hour and a half more or less um, session uh, each week for eight weeks. So yeah, so that's, for example, and our trial was what we call very pragmatic. So we, the researchers were trying to adapt everything to the usual life in the university. And they were trying to test the mindfulness course as it was given, as it was delivered um, under the usual conditions. So um, we, for instance, we didn't change the inclusion criteria for the course, or we didn't, um, uh, you know, change the uh, make sure that people attended all the sessions of the course. We just um, try to measure whatever happens in real life, um, and yeah, and 
So we, we the students had these scores um, uh, some months before the the exam period, and then um, we measured what happened with their psychological distress during the exam period while they were revising. And we found uh, actually very, very positive results, even, you know, to our surprise. So the statistician was blind. So when um, the statistician was analyzing the data, they uh, they didn't know whether the um, whether what was it being positive was the controller intervention until we unveiled the uh, the groups in a in a very, <laughs> very formal meeting. And yeah, so we did uh, find that for the average student in Cambridge, the course that we tested was very positive, uh, helping them what we called with a moderate effect size. Um, so it was it's it's a good you know change for for a psychological intervention. That's really cool. So did I suppose it's quite hard to tell, but did um, do you know if the students carried on doing it after their course finished or or what the proportion of people that were that were carrying on? Yeah, well, so um, we we did measure. We asked um, about their meditation practice uh, like three or four times throughout the year, and we um, so we have a one year follow up point. That means that we followed uh, the students in the control and the intervention groups for one year, and we are just now analysing the um, the results of the one year follow up, and we will you know analyse it, publish the practice data along with that. What we are seeing, and this is really just, you know, just doing it last week. Um, so it's very preliminary, but we do see that there is an impact, you know, the, 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 the amount, the amount of practice that you do after your course and during the year will have an impact on on your well-being. But this is, um, as I said, very preliminary. So more to come. Yeah. And so that trial started in 2015, was it? Uh, yes, like late 2015. Yes. So that's when that's about when I finished my undergraduate course, and I don't remember there being the services offered there were um, they were okay, but it was more kind of uh, talking therapies rather than than something like this. But it's quite cool to see that it's that it's being implemented like in a in a university now, um, and. What kind of what, what was the reaction of the students when they were taking it? Were they kind of a bit skeptical about it, or were they enthusiastic and, and on board with it? Yeah. Um, yes. Uh, related to what you just said about you know therapy. So although this course was kind of funded and uh, sponsored by the counselling service, the course was not called therapy, and it was really for any uh, pretty much any well student in Cambridge. So. Um, so it was mindfulness skills for life. So that makes a difference in how students perceive this. Um, and um, the acceptance was quite high. I mean, we uh, we advertised it throughout the campus and we got more than 600 students taking part. Uh, there were, um, and there still are waiting lists for the mindfulness course. Now, how many people actually do the eight sessions? That's different. So quite a few students miss sessions, um, but that didn't. We didn't find that to be a problem. Like even if you include the students who miss sessions, you would still get beneficial results. So there's also a question mark there. How many sessions do you need to get better? Um, and also this is on average, right? So it may be different for different students. For instance, you are saying what's the student's per perception? So. For most of them, it was fine, but not not for everyone. Um, 
and this is all sorts of things like some students saying I don't actually like the group format so so they would have the course in groups of up to 30 students and uh, some students approached us and they said we are going to continue with the textbook but at home we don't like sharing things in the group so you know you do have um, people for whom this is not the ideal the ideal situation uh, we also excluded but this is the usual exclusion in this mindfulness course. We excluded students that were having active crises, active life crises, and they, which, which were not being you know, managed and balanced at the moment. We asked them to refrain from learning mindfulness at this particular moment. So they, they could learn mindfulness later, but you know, it's, it's just at that acute moment, or if they have an untreated um, mental illness, you know, serious mental illness. So, um, I'm saying this because uh, this is a safeguard. Uh, there are clear indications that some, for some people, these general mindfulness courses are not necessarily beneficial and they could actually you know, be uh, wor worse than the situation. Actually, for instance, we had, I can remember one student who had a life crisis while she was doing the course. And she said, um, I'm going to stop doing the course because all I can think of when I close my eyes and, you know, I, I, I'm told to um, let my thoughts, you know, free, uh, flow free and not identify with them. Like all she could think of is the traumatic moment. So she stopped doing the course and then we followed her. We followed her up. We checked with her later and, and she was fine later and a couple of months later. And actually she was um, trying to learn mindfulness again and she was quite keen and happy with, with mindfulness later. So there's there's timing issues. So this is not um, this is not a walk in in the park. You know, this is um, these meditation techniques can be uh, a bit um, difficult for some people. So yeah, so we did have you know the old student um, questioning in different ways the course. But for most students, this was a good surprise. Um, many of them had no clue about mindfulness, which was interesting. Also to know they they really didn't know what to expect, and uh, that was that was good because you know they they found value in something new. Yeah, that's really interesting that it's kind of branded as a um, not like a crisis intervention, but a, a kind of life skill. I think that's a really good way to to get people to do it because I think a lot of people that in the kind of heat of a crisis, it pr it probably isn't that helpful. Um, especially if you're being told to kind of not focus on your thoughts and they're quite intrusive ones but mm -hmm. maybe as you're recovering it might be a useful tool but for that crisis intervention it, it's it could be like you said potentially harmful yeah yeah exactly i think that there's you know we, we do need more research on on this topic about how harmful you know um for whom and uh, and who is likely not to benefit perhaps you know perhaps not being harmed but perhaps this is not the right thing for them. There's also in terms of when when you talk about things that are not therapy, that are kind of um, uh, interventions to improve your well-being, feel-good practices. There's a lot of um, the, the engagement of people has a lot of weight. So if you like what you're doing, if you enjoy what you're doing, if you see some purpose on what you're doing, so not everyone will enjoy uh, sitting, you know, with their eyes closed for for a long period of time. Um, they may need something much more physical. They may need, you know, a totally different thing to um, to be able to process their their stress. And and so the universities, I think, need, 
to be aware of this and offer a wide range of things, not just um, think, it, think that one magical intervention will solve the life of lots of students or all of the students. Um, so yeah, it's. I think this problem of students needing to learn how to, you know, pro promote their well-being is is something that you need to tackle from very different angles. Yeah, and important to have a kind of more holistic perspective than relying on one um, one particular, uh, I suppose, intervention or um, something you find helpful. Yes, yes. And the, the system and the structure are also big determinants of mental health. So this is, you know, this is at the level of the society, but also at the level of the university campus, the, um, you know, what type of culture you have in your campus. That is also a big, big driver. And what's your situation within that campus? Um, if you are in a minority, for instance, you will, you know, experience more adversity within the campus, outside the campus. Uh, so there's people who may need different different approaches and different intensities as well of, of help. So in, in general, while you've been working at universities and, and studying, I suppose, as well, have you seen the kind of the um, how have you seen student mental health kind of evolve and and change is it is it is it true that it is getting that you can see a trend yes it might be getting worse um this is a million dollar question <laughs> um we we chat you know frequently about this with the team um so what we think is we, we as i said it's not something it's not um confirmation of anything it's just uh what our working hypothesis is that yes uh students may be more in need of um mental health support but uh, a lot of it may be driven by, by them just speaking out not all of not all of it so there may be you know a real increase in 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 mental health um problems or weaknesses or or um just some tendency uh, to to have problems, but but a lot of it is driven by by increased disclosure and increased will increased willingness to find help, perhaps in clumsy ways, you know, perhaps not always in the same in the in the best um, in the best way, and also it's hard it's difficult to navigate sometimes the support structures that universities have. So if you're an 18-year-old facing a lot of new things and then suddenly you find yourself depressed or with problems, it's hard to tell, well, what, who should I contact first? And and perhaps you don't contact the, the best person first, you know. And so um, one thing that is being talked a lot about is everything, you know, every part of the support structure in the university or actually any institution has to know about the other support structures and they have to be able to um, share kind of not not necessarily personal information but just the ability to tell the person okay you know you also have these these and that and this may be more helpful for you that kind of thing yeah that's interesting because i when i was at university i didn't find the um, i suppose the link up between the university services and uh, the NHS services weren't particularly good and that uh, once I moved back home um, I kind of got put back on a waiting list that I'd been on in a different yeah. uh, so it was the, the link up between the universities and 
the uh, the NHS care just wasn't really good. Um, but I think from from speaking to you and a few other people, those kind of things are are improving. Yes, yes. Oh, yeah. The, the example you are giving is just you know uh, perfect. Um, and and disclosure is growing a lot. So uh, when students start, for instance, in Cambridge, they they start university and they can disclose any condition to the uh, disability service. And that has increased a lot, like in the last 10 years, almost uh, by a 2000% increase in the disclosures of mental health problems. Um, so that, that helps a lot because you can plan your services once you know, you know, uh, your stu- student body a bit more. Yeah, it's interesting that that actually might be a case a positive thing that more people feel comfortable disclosing the issues that they have um and like an example that i can think of is in um a sport i play in cricket um a lot was kind of being said that um that it had an issue with players and their mental health but uh someone had a really interesting take on it and they were saying actually the fact that you know about all of these cricketers uh, and what they're going through is because the kind of players cricket critics association were so good at supporting them and actively mm. encouraging them to talk uh, to talk to the media and the public. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Well, you just um, I just found out this week that there's uh, there's an organisation here in the EN- the local NHS called Wearing Two Hats, where uh, they um, try to stimulate. Um, mental health workers to actually disclose their own if they have a mental health condition to disclose them just to show people that you you can actually be a mental health professional and also have knowledge lived experience of the of the conditions um i thought that was a very you know um progressive and interesting way of handling this stigma problem yeah especially probably because the stress they're under is probably quite high um just to kind of wrap things up what does your kind of safeguarding your own mental health what what does that look like what kind of what kind of things do you find helpful oh that's a great question um i do find uh meditation helpful to an extent so i i have my my little practice that i try to keep not always <laughs> successfully um and that is a bit of an adventure as well so you know because i have these uh, professional interests as well so so it's kind of um fun for me in a way um but then uh i think my my most important you know my most important mental health safeguarding thing i think is to um just take care of my relationships with my loved ones that's a big one for me um make sure i respect my sleep that's another big one and i respect my what what i feel my body is asking or needing uh that was that was something i learned a bit the hard way perhaps not very hard but 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 really kind of with the years i i've been like more and more conscious of how important it is that you listen to your own body and and um and just try to have a, a good relationship with with your mind as well with your body and with your mind so a lot of um self-respect I guess could be a good word. Self-compassion sometimes. Um, playing sports, that's something that um, I also find really good. I, I'm not a competitive sports player by any means, but I try to 
to do the things that I enjoy. And yeah, I guess I guess that's, I, get, I I try to take a very holistic view. Yeah, for instance, another big thing that I'm missing is loving my my work. Like I chose you know this this researcher job. Um, I, I love what I do. It's hard work sometimes, and it doesn't pay. Uh, perhaps for the effort you put in, in terms of strictly in terms of money compared to other professions. But uh, I just enjoy every every day, you know, the eight hours or whatever hours of work that I do, I, I enjoy them. So th- I think that's that's really a huge part of your mental health. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, and where can we find out more about what you do and, and, and your department does? Um... Yeah, I I really would like to have a website that I could tell you how you know just um find out about what we're doing the website I I would like to work towards that in next year that's one of my resolutions we do have a social media channel in Facebook and Twitter so um so that one is in Twitter it, it is mss at uoc and Facebook is actually the same handle so that's that's probably for now the best way of uh, keeping up to date with what uh, we're doing here in Cambridge with, with mindfulness so yeah brilliant that's been absolutely fascinating Julieta thank you very much no no thank you very much Just a quick reminder that although we find the stuff in the podcast useful, if you're suffering with your mental health, always go to a mental health professional. Details on how to do this can be found through the charity Mind or through the NHS website. 